I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. which is our kind of denominational campground, and we meet there, kind of gather there every July, and have special services and meetings, and all the pastors have to go and do some things, and all that kind of stuff, and, and, it's, and it's good and it's fun, but we had, to, we had to live in a trailer, six brewers, for a week. And listen, I know some of you do camping on purpose. There are some people who like camping, I am not one of you. I am not remotely one of you. Uh, our trailer was, a, it was even a nice one. It had like air conditioning and water. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's about it, but that's still an upgrade on some of the other places we've stayed before. And, and for some people, that wouldn't have even been camping. That's fake camping. But, uh, you're, you, you had it easy, man. You had a roof over your head. That's why I still hate everything about it. I really do. Uh, when people say, let's go camping, I hear, let's go be inconvenienced. <laughs> like, let's, let's make sure that we can't turn around without knocking into a shelf, and let's make sure our bed is uncomfortable. Let's make sure that we're in close proximity to a whole bunch of other people's annoying children, and let's make sure that we're not in close proximity to good coffee. Let's make sure that whatever the temperature is, it's the wrong one. Let's, let's all go do that for fun. Yay! Anyway, Beulah's great. <laughs> uh, now listen, listen. I actually do like the Beulah part of Beulah. I, I like the services. I love seeing all my friends that are there and pastors in ministry together. It's really good. They just need a Hampton Inn on site. And then, and then I would really enjoy it. Uh, but we did have a very cool thing happen at Beulah this year. We officially joined, or officially had uh, Matt join the staff team yeah. at Cross Point. So Now and like Dave already said, he got ordained on Friday, so he is Reverend Faringer, and uh, that's really exciting stuff. Um, is he in here right now? Hey, -o. do you want to just stand up, Matt? Can everyone see Matt? Yes. He is tall. He is tall. So this is Matt, and that's his wife Ashley right beside him. And we're just so excited for these guys. Matt is our first full-time kids pastor. And I want you to know I say that because we believe in children's ministry. 
We believe that it is incredibly important. We believe that it's going to continue to help us see more families come to Jesus. We believe that it is a massive part of maintaining a future for this church and for the church. And we believe in Matt and Ashley, and we're so blessed to have them here. Uh, Matt actually graduated with a theology degree, and um, he's an incredible musician, and I'm not sure he ever thought he would be in children's ministry, uh, but his first kind of gig in ministry kind of planted him in children's ministry, and he ended up just flourishing in it and developing it and growing it and really having a passion <laughs> in his heart for kids' ministry, and it's just really turned into this cool thing. And so we're really excited to have him and to have them here. Him and Ashley both are gifted worship leaders, and so I'm sure you'll see her up on stage at some point as well. Uh, but we're excited, and I hope you guys get a chance to meet them and also congratulate Matt at some point this weekend or whenever you can. But uh, welcome to you guys. It is really, really good to have you. Um, that means that right now, this is Natalie's last weekend with like kids downstairs in kids' ministry in that capacity. So she's going to get to come to big church <laughs> next weekend, all the time. That's what they call it, big church. And so we're excited about that. Uh, so we're going to kind of be saying a few things about Natalie next weekend and kind of honoring her and thanking her. And so you'll want to be here for that as well. Uh, so let's really get into what we're talking about today. We're in this series on the creed talking about the foundations of our faith. The things that are not up for debate, the non-negotiable things. That's what the creed is. We compared it last week to a chocolate cake recipe. Saying you can make chocolate cake look a whole bunch of different ways, but you're probably going to have to start with eggs and butter and cocoa and all that kind of stuff, right? That's your foundation. You can decorate it 7,000 ways after that, so long as your foundation is still there, you can call yourself chocolate cake. And so the creed are the things that say, this is what makes us Christians. This is what makes us the church. And, and so a couple weeks ago we talked about how the church is universal, meaning it's global. That it's a family around the world. We have brothers and sisters in the faith all across this globe that will be worshiping together with us this weekend. That's really cool. Last weekend we talked about the Trinity and how we believe that God is three in one. That he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's still only one God. And so we talk about how maybe we don't necessarily understand it, but we believe it. And that is what the church around the world believes as well. So today, what we're talking about is about Jesus and salvation. Those are pretty key parts of our faith. Uh, it'd be really hard to call yourself a Christian without those two parts. Yes, okay. Jesus is important today at Cross Point Church. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, we'll be there even if you don't. <laughs> Pastor jokes. Okay. <laughs> Luke 15. We're going to talk about lost things today. Have you ever lost something? We've all lost something. Right? Sometimes it's small things. I lose my sunglasses every day four times. Sometimes you lose your keys or your wallet or whatever. Sometimes you've lost larger things. Sometimes you've lost like your child at the mall or whatever, hypothetically, it might be. There's all kinds of stories of things that have been lost and, and some really famous things that have been lost that people are trying to find. Uh, for instance, how many of you watch that The Curse of Oak Island TV show? Or anyone know what I'm talking about with Oak Island? Apparently, there was this like 
buried pirate's treasure somewhere way under the ground, under the ocean, off Oak Island, which is the small island off the south shore of Nova Scotia. People have been trying to hunt it down since the 1700s. People have died trying to find this ridiculous Oak Island treasure. And now there's these two brothers from Michigan that have kind of made it their life's goal to find it. And so these two brothers have a pile of money and they're spending it to find a different pile of money under the ground. I feel like at the end of the show, they're, they're not going to have piles of money, but they're on the hunt for this missing treasure. And they live in Nova Scotia for like huge chunks out of the year. They dedicate their life and, and spending all this money on expensive machinery to dig stuff up. All they ever find is dirty ocean water and wood. That's it. Every week, that's what they find. And then they build it up, like, maybe this week it'll be different. Like, and, and every episode ends with, oh, what did we find? And they roll the credits, and then next week starts, and it's like, was it just another piece of wood? Yes. <laughs> but maybe it's not, but it is. But it might be something, no, it won't be, because welcome to another episode of Nothing Happens in Nova Scotia. <laughs> which anyone on the soda store could have told you years ago. We're going to discover that the treasure that is hidden at Oak Island is the money that the History Channel is making from this TV show. That is the only treasure to be found. And so when we watch people get sucked in, it's a hugely popular show. I watch this show because we just want them to find something! Find anything! Just find something! And we're so excited when lost things get found. We're so excited when, when a thing that was missing for so long finally shows up. And that's what we're talking about today. That's what Luke 15 is all about. And it's actually a trilogy. It's three stories in a row about lost things being found. And so we're going to start at verse 1. And it says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Tax collectors and notorious sinners would often come to listen to Jesus teach. I want to stop there just for a minute because this is a very significant verse. Notorious sinners would come to Jesus to hear him teach. Why? Never wonder that. And why don't they anymore? I mean, the gospel was powerful enough that people like that were drawn to it. They were drawn to Jesus. There didn't need to be any invitations or promotional materials or big, huge events. They just showed up to see Jesus. I mean, that doesn't happen today. People, people today assume that Jesus would have driven out notorious sinners. That, that somehow Jesus has a do not enter sign for certain kinds of people. There are people who legitimately think they can't go to church because they wouldn't be welcomed at church. Somewhere along the way, we've skewed this a little bit. And so we'll come back to that, but it's really important for us to talk about today. The other thing I want us to see in here is that they've kind of got people categorized. There's the tax collectors, but they're different from the notorious sinners, and they're different from all the other people that just happen to be there. And so we need to talk about that for a minute. And, and so tax collectors, they, they were, you know, kind of separated according to their badness. They, they were considered even worse than the notorious sinners. Tax collectors. They had their own kind of 
bracket that they were called. Um, the tax collectors, sometimes we hear about them, they weren't just corrupt. It's not just that they robbed people. It's not like well, your taxes are 30, but we charged you 60 and we pocketed it. Sure, that happened, but it was bigger than that. It was so much bigger than they were just kind of being corrupt and slimy. So we've got to remember, this is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was cruel and evil and bloodthirsty. Sometimes we forget that's the setting for the Bible. But you can go read history books, you can go online and look it up, and it was awful. And the whole point of the Roman Empire was to continually expand and grow the Roman Empire. Their goal was power, their goal was world domination, and they would do that at whatever cost, whatever it took. And so they would literally go into other villages and they would slaughter the people who lived there, men, women, and children. I mean, it's horrific. I can't even go into detail about it. You can go find that stuff out for yourself. Maybe you learned it in school. But it was just this ongoing, massive, kind of bloodthirsty expansion. But that kind of expansion cost a lot of money. It required a massive army. But a massive army like that requires a lot of people and food and animals and armor and weaponry and all that stuff costs a lot of money and so the only way to fund it was to overtax the Roman Empire and they did, some historians say the Roman Empire, that the peasants were taxed 90% and they lived off 10. In fact, this is what some historians would even say led to the downfall of the Roman Empire because people get so fed up with it, it led to the ongoing revolts where people just eventually stopped giving in. But this is what tax collectors did then. It was their job to basically rob everyone they could find and use that money to slaughter men, women, and children so that the empire could expand. So it's not just the tax collectors were corrupt. It's not just, oh, you robbed me today, or oh, taxes are so high like we complain about today. It's that they, they funded a bloodthirsty empire's ongoing growth. I mean, it was horrific. They were the people responsible. And yet Jesus looks at tax collectors and he invited one of them to be his disciple. You now start to get the picture of why people were so mad when Jesus hung out with tax collectors. I mean, remember the story of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector and he wanted to hear Jesus preaching one day. He was so short that he couldn't see. He kept trying to like push in. Eventually he had to climb a tree and, and look at Jesus. And Jesus was like, fine, dude, I'll just come over to your house for lunch. Get down from the tree. And, and we used to listen to that story in Sunday school. We had a song about it. Remember that? Zacchaeus was a wee little man who funded a bloodthirsty empire. But that wasn't the words to the song. But that's what Zacchaeus was doing. And that's why people were furious and livid that the guy who said he was the son of God would somehow spend his days with tax collectors. It didn't seem right. They were the enemy. So that's one category. Another category we've got are the notorious sinners. And that word notorious comes with a label of its own where you kind of see these people as the, the seedy underbelly of the Roman Empire. These were the people that often had occupations that, that people would try to cover up or not talk about. They were the slave traders. They were the prostitutes. The notorious sinners. In fact, people who got lumped into that category were often people with diseases and disabilities. The assumption being they must have done something horrific for God to punish them to such a degree that they would have that affliction. And so they were all considered unclean. You couldn't go near them. You couldn't touch them. 
Don't eat a meal. Like, you'd never even fathom eating a meal with them. You couldn't even get close to them. If you got close to them, the badness might jump onto you. It might rub off on you. you got to be careful. Don't go near them. They were the notorious sinners. And so you separated yourself from them. It was, you, you, you had to stay separate. It was like washing your whites and your reds. you got to keep them separated. You're going to end up with pink underpants. That's what's going to happen. Sinners are just like pink underpants. It's, wasn't in my notes, actually. Um, so we've got the tax collectors, and then we've got the notorious sinners. We've got these people who are considered the lowest of the low, the down and out, the dirty, the, the kind of just that part, and, and then it just talks about everyone else. But hold on, isn't everyone else also a sinner? I mean, don't you believe that we're all sinners? I mean, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would say, no, I'm perfect, perfect. I've never sinned. And we've all sinned. See, most of us don't have a problem acknowledging that we have sinned. The problem is that none of us think we're the notorious sinners. See, we still do this, don't we? We still categorize. Well, there's the tax collectors and the bad sinners. And then, I mean, there's the rest of us, but we're not like them. And we somehow think, think that, that we're separate from them, that we're a little bit better than them, we're somehow superior to them because we're, we're sinners, but not like them. They're the keep your distance, don't get too close kind of people. Don't, don't get your kids around them. We're fine. We're normal over here. I'm sin, but you know, I'm not a homeless drug addict kind of sinner. I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like a murderer with jail time kind of sinner. I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like bringing the downfall of society. Don't we have our own categories? In fact, there are some people that we still are convinced are bringing down the, the society a little bit, and we'll say, well, I mean, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not advocating for abortion. I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not trying to redefine marriage. I'm a sinner, but at least I don't vote for that party. I mean, I know that I'm bad, but I'm not like them. Dear, rhetorical question, but haven't you put yourself there just a little bit at certain points? We think that we're somehow different. We think that we're somehow better or on a platform just because we sin differently. And you know what's amazing about this? Jesus didn't go to these people. These people came to Jesus. He didn't have to go to them. They wanted to come to him. There was something about Jesus and his message that appealed to even the people that, that we would, they were, they were the down and out, the notorious, the worst of the worst. Verse 2 goes on and says, This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain. <laughs> Does that sound a little bit like the church? They complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. How dare you? See, they're playing the us and them game. He's not, no, he's supposed to be one of us. He's supposed to be religious. He should be in church right now. What are you doing? You can't leave church and go talk to those people. We're the well-scrubbed church folks. You can't go be with them. I can't believe you eat dinner with them. 
It's going to rub off on you. That's what they were legitimately concerned about. And the fact that Jesus spent time with these people was an immediate, instant issue for the Pharisees. I mean, it was bad. They had their minds made up. This man is guilty, off his rocker. No way he can be the Messiah. No way he can be the Son of God because of the people he's eating with, the people he's associating with. This is not okay. This is not who we're sh we should be hanging out with. And, and for other words, for the Pharisees, separating themselves was of the utmost importance. That's what they were concerned about. Keeping sinners out was more important than welcoming sinners in. That's what the church had become in the first century. Who's out and who's in? Separation took precedence. See, that's what righteousness looked like to them. It wasn't just avoiding sin. It was avoiding sinners. And you know what? I don't think it's just a first century thing. I think sometimes it's easy for all of us. Like when I say the church, when I say very religious people, you understand I'm in that category, in church, my whole life, guilty as charged. And saying that sometimes our righteous, righteousness has been more about avoiding sinners than maybe taking care of our own sin. More concerned about who's in and who's out than how it is I'm living my own life. See, as far as those highly religious people were concerned, those notorious sinners can be damned. I mean, that's what they felt, literally, theologically. That's what they said. They're, they're not good enough to come to heaven with us. They're not good enough to enter into the church. They're, they don't have what it takes, and you just don't get in. For them, the church was all about fences and walls. It was all about gates, as if that was the heart of God. That's what they turned it into. Now, that is the context for the three stories we're about to read. See, oftentimes when people read Luke 15, they'll just jump right into verse 3, which is the first story. But these two verses are why he's telling these three stories. That's why verse 3 starts with the word, so. So, Jesus told them a story. What he's saying is that because of the Pharisees being there with the notorious sinners, now that's why we're about to have these three stories. Okay, so we all we needed to get all that before we could actually get to what we were talking about. And so, verse 4. Jesus starts preaching. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine... Uh, others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't even strayed away. <coughs> And you can imagine in that moment, that is a pretty direct story for his company. He's saying there's more joy in heaven that these people would get there with us than if you were just going by yourself. You know what they're saying in that moment? You know what they're all whispering to themselves under their breath? He needs to die. This guy's got to go. This is scary stuff. This is wrong. This isn't good. Then they start, they start kind of putting their plan together. He's got to die. Because what Jesus is saying is, in other words, notorious sinners like them are going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. 
that Jesus wants them in the kingdom, that he would be excited about having them in the kingdom. So panic mode starts to set in, and then Jesus just goes right into story number two. He doesn't even have a transition. He's just from one story right into the next story. They're all freaking out. He's like, story two. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So again, he's like, just in case you guys missed the first story that was super direct, let me tell it again with a few details changed, but it's the same thing. Jesus is going to be super excited when these people get saved. They are welcomed in the kingdom. Salvation is for everybody. And he says there's joy, and the angels are rejoicing when people like these make it. When they get there. And so the details of these stories aren't important. There's, you know, 1% of the sheep or 10% of the money. The point is that we have an owner who values what's missing to such a degree that he will work and work and work at finding it until he finally does. And when he does, there's a party. That's what salvation is worth to Jesus. He is the one who pursues us. He is the one who comes after us and says, I love you and value you so much that I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you're with me. And when the day comes, when you finally enter my kingdom, when, when the day comes, when you get saved, there is going to be a party. Every salvation is worthy of a party. Amen. Every salvation is worthy of rejoicing. And there will be joy in heaven. When lost things get found, there's a party. You better believe if Rick and Marty ever find that stupid treasure on Oak Island, that they are going to lose their minds. If they ever find that treasure, chances are they're not going to go, well, look, we found a treasure. Neat. What a pleasant change of events. We should contact the local museum and inform them of our findings. No, they're going to lose their minds. They're going to be swimming in gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, and it's going to be the greatest thing that you could ever imagine. That's what any sensible person would do, because you are excited when something that is valuable, that was lost, gets found. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, everyone should be fired up and excited, except, except the Pharisees weren't. Except the super religious people weren't. You know what they thought? They thought lost things should just stay lost. It's their own fault anyway that they're lost. They were doing lost things, thinking lost thoughts, saying lost things. They, they, they really just deserve to get whatever it is that's coming to them. You know what? I'm okay with 99. 99 out of 100 is not that bad. The one that wandered off, that's their own fault. They miss out. Sorry. That is not the way of Jesus. 99 out of 100 is not enough for him. And he is flipping on the light and sweeping the floor, doing everything he can to find that one missing one so he can bring them home and have joy. We're not good with 99. And so they're all still taking in story one and then story two, and he goes right into story three. Verse 11 says, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. 
In other words, I really would just kind of hope that you would die so I can have your money, but you're not dead, can I just have your money? That's the equivalent of what he just said. But get this, his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So this is the famous story of the prodigal sons. And we don't have time to read this whole thing verbatim because Jesus goes into way more detail in story number three than he does the first two. Short story is that this kid gets his inheritance, travels off to a far off country, and does whatever you would assume a young man with a lot of money who's alone in a foreign country would do. But he quickly finds out that money goes fast. And he hits rock bottom, he discovers that he is alone, his friends left when his money left, he is hungry, he is unemployed, he has nowhere to go, wakes up next to some pigs, decides to eat their food for a while and thinks, I'm gonna die. I need to get back home. And so he kind of concocts this plan in his head where he's gonna go back home, crawling on his hands and knees, beg his father for a job, I'll work in the fields like one of your peasants, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes, I just, I just need to get back home. And, and so that's his decision, and, and he gets home and he gets off into the distance, but before he has the chance to get on his hands and knees and crawl home and beg, his father is watching for him, and sees him, and goes running to his son, loses his mind, and then his as he runs, he's yelling to the people in the home, verse 23, kill the calf, we've been fattening, we must celebrate with a feast, this son of mine was dead, and now he has returned to life, he was lost, but now he is found, and the party began. And I love that story, it's such a good story, and, and if it was like the first two, it would have ended right there, that's how they all end, the lost thing gets found, everyone parties, but this is a special part of the story. This is like the extended director's cut. All the deleted scenes made it into this one, and, and Jesus decides to write a few extra characters into this story. And the Pharisees that are there listening are about to find out that they just got written into the story. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf for celebrating because of the safe return. The older brother was angry. You think about that for a minute. Your, your brother, who took off and, and just you thought he was going to die, finally got back home and everyone's excited and he's angry. And he wouldn't go in. Highly religious people don't like parties. They don't like music and dancing. Get that out of the church. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never even once gave me a, a young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, he doesn't even say his brother, he doesn't even call him by his name. When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate and you kill a fattened calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. See, everyone was excited about the lost things getting found, except the Pharisees. They're the older brother. 
The older brother is not excited. See, the older brother somehow thought that his good performance made him superior to his brother. He thought that all of his years of good behavior somehow separated him and made him worthy of some kind of special acknowledgement from his dad. The, the, the older brother thought the younger brother should have just got what he deserved. The older brother thought that there wasn't justice happening, that there wasn't fairness happening. The older brother was convinced that he was somehow better than, you know what, we'll just come out and say the older brother probably thought the younger brother shouldn't even be back in this house. He shouldn't even be welcomed home. He deserved whatever he got coming to him. But the father says he was lost and he's found. He is my son. Of course he's welcomed home. Of course we're going to have a party. And so what Jesus is saying to this crowd and to all of us is that God is not in the business of separating, but of inviting in. That is what Jesus does. He is not in the business of kicking out, but of welcoming. He's not in the business of shaming our sin, but redeeming us. He's not in the business of, of the punishment, but of, of celebrating and offering forgiveness. And he celebrates when it happens. He's a God who says, I am that guy who lost my sheep and I went out and got it. I'm the woman who lost her coin and I went and I found it. I'm that dad who lost his son and I ran to him when I saw him coming. I am a God who goes after my lost people because I value them and I love them and I want them to be saved and I'm going to party every single time that it happens. He is a God who welcomes everyone in, not satisfied with 99%. The Bible says that it is his desire that all would be saved. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And in every case, he says, and salvation is worthy of a party. See, the Pharisees looked at him in verse 2 and said, he eats with sinners. And they meant it as an insult, and he took it like a compliment. He's like, you're right, I do. And get a lot of these stories. I'm going to welcome them into heaven, and we're going to throw a party for them. Because I celebrate when lost things get found. Now, sadly, Luke chapter 15 does not give us the responses of all of the Pharisees who were there that day. Though we know how they felt, because eventually they kill him. So we understand where they still stood. Their minds weren't necessarily changed. But there's two things in these stories that I want us to take home today. The first, because really he's speaking to two crowds. He's speaking to notorious sinners. He's also speaking to the Pharisees. Those three stories were for both parties. They both said something to both parties. So the first thing that we need to find in here is that salvation is for everyone. That is our creed statement on salvation. That it is for everyone. That the good news of the gospel is that through the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, that all people can come to him and find salvation under the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. And he will give them salvation and repentance and restoration and redemption and freedom and eternity. Mm -hmm. And every time that happens, it's a party. It is for everyone. No one is disqualified from the kingdom of God. No one has gone too far, been too bad, said too much, done anything the wrong way, the doors are open for everyone. That's huge. It's awesome. The second thing that we see in Luke 15 is a warning. 
to the super-churched people, the highly religious people. And it's a warning to resist the temptation to think that you have now become a gatekeeper to the church. It's to resist the temptation of being gatekeepers of salvation instead of realizing that we are sinners who needed that salvation too. That we were in need of it just as much as anyone else. There are no gatekeepers in the kingdom. It will not be our job. It is not our job to separate the sheep and the goats. It's not what the church is here to do. The church is here to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ so that more and more and more and more and more and more people would get saved. That's what we're supposed to do. See, the Pharisees never assumed that those stories were about them, but see, the Pharisees were as much those lost sheep as the notorious sinners were. There's no categorizing of sinners. We just are. It doesn't matter what we've done. And the Pharisees were as much tax collectors and notorious sinners as anyone else was. See, we think the day we got saved was the day we stopped needing a savior. No, I'm good, I get saved, I get Jesus, I'm good to go. No, I need him tomorrow too. And I'm gonna need him the next day. And I'm gonna need him the next day. Not saying that I need to get saved every day, but salvation and this whole idea of transformation and holiness is an ongoing everyday process and you will never be done it until you're dead. We're never going to make it. He's never going to give us a badge that says, Gatekeeper, you help me. Help me pick who's in and out. You help me separate the sheep and the goats. We are never given that invitation. We are called to love people, to show them Jesus, and to point them to the way. And to celebrate when it happens. So, that's a warning to us. To never think that we're somehow better, superior, more worthy. That's older brother stuff. Church, that is the most anti-gospel mentality that we can have. It is demonic. Jesus despised it. He preached against it time and time and time again. We have all sinned. We need to celebrate when very lost people get saved. And we need to remember that we are very lost people. And he took us in. We are so much like God when we rejoice in the salvation of sinners, and we are so much like the devil when we consider ourselves to be better than them. So let's see Jesus today. Let's point people to Jesus. Let's show them the Jesus who welcomes lost people with loving arms, the Jesus who, who searches the field and turns on the light and sweeps the floors and gets on his hands and knees, searching and looking and finding and pursuing and chasing. The, the goal here, it, it isn't even like one of those, like, this is an evangelistic. Luke 15 is not an evangelistic tool. Go and do likewise. No, Jesus always said, go and do likewise, when he meant it. He didn't say it here. The point was to see Jesus, to stand in awe of him, to love him, to accept him, to appreciate and worship and bow down before him, to acknowledge our sin and our need for a savior to celebrate when other people get saved and do everything we can to make sure that more and more and more people get saved. Let's live in such a way that tax collectors and notorious sinners would want to come to church to hear about Jesus. Not that we would even have to go out and get them, which we do, absolutely, but they would, they would be so drawn by the love that they would feel by this family right here that they would just start showing up because they know that this is a place where there's not fences and gates and doors, but, but it's open arms for everyone and every person 
Let's not get caught up in self-righteous living, assuming that we somehow get to decide who's worthy and who's not. Let's love well. All people. Let's preach the gospel. Let's show them Jesus, and then let's party. Right? Sometimes I feel like we even forget the party part. That's biblical. Why did the church stop partying? Right? We should be the part. We should, we should be the prototypical partiers. The ones who know how to do it and do it well and celebrate well and feast well. Let's reclaim the biblical party. Amen. The world thinks they know how to party. They're awful at it. They feel terrible when it's all over. Let's show them how to party well. See, this weekend, we're going to celebrate baptisms. And that's a celebration of lost people getting found. That's a celebration of joy. Angels in heaven will rejoice. It's going to be awesome. Let's party well. You should come back tomorrow at noon and help celebrate that. It's going to be awesome. But also let's remember to love well this week. Everyone. To go to the people who have somehow considered maybe too far gone. They're not. Go find them. To somehow love the people that, that just make the hair on your head stand up. Like, oh, not them, not them. They're the opposite of everything about me. Go love them. Because they might go to heaven too someday. Isn't that what you want? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. So I'm going to close with an opportunity. Maybe you're here today and you've never been saved. And we would tell you that it is the absolute greatest decision that you could ever make. And that when you get saved, that story, Luke 15, it's all true. Angels of heaven will rejoice. And God will say, welcome home. You were dead, but now you are alive. Let's party. Join the family. Get in on this. It's the greatest thing you could ever be a part of. And to simply get saved, the Bible says you just need to believe in your heart that he is Lord and call on his name. And you can come to him and you'll be saved. And so I'm going to give us an opportunity to do that today. And I'm going to help us pray through that. And uh, then we're going to sing. We're going to party. It's going to be great. So let me pray for us today. Just get you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads. But if you're here today, you would say that you've never been saved. And you know that you need to be, and that Jesus has been calling you, he's been talking to you, you're feeling like that, I've put it off for so long, but maybe today is the day to finally say, Jesus Christ, I need you in my life. I'm just going to ask you right now if you would raise your hand up so that we would know who you are and who we can pray for today. Is there anyone that would say, today is the day I need to get saved? All right. Maybe there are people in this room today that would say, I don't necessarily fit uh, any more in the notorious sinner category, but I would certainly fit into the Pharisee category. And I have been guilty, perhaps, of assuming some self-righteous thoughts and maybe living in a way that assumed I was somehow better or somehow more superior or more worthy. I've, just, I've done a good job of categorizing the people in my life, and I need to repent of that today and change the way that I live. If that's you today, I would just ask if you would raise your hand as well. We would love to pray for you. That's a hard one. My hand is up. Church, we do this. We're good at this. Amen. Let us pray. Today, Jesus Christ, we are so grateful for your presence with us today. We're grateful, Holy Spirit, that you've been speaking to us. And God, I just pray that, that you would help us to live Luke 15 well, 
no matter what side of the story we find ourselves on. God, for those that have raised their hands and would have said, you know what, I struggle sometimes with living kind of the highly religious Pharisee lifestyle. I don't mean to do it. I don't do it intentionally. But the idea just sneaks in there that, that somehow I'm better and they're worse. That, that somehow I'm more deserving and they're less so. That, that somehow I want my kind of people in heaven, but I'm not sure I'd want to associate with these people. God, I pray that you would break down those, those thoughts today. I, I pray against that self-righteous heart that so easily forms within us. We pray against it in the name of Jesus. That you would break down these religious barriers. That you would break down the, the Pharisee heart that forms so easily inside of us. We pray against it. And we pray for the heart of Jesus to be evident in all of us. That we would look at everyone and see someone who needs Jesus. That we would look at everyone and love them and pray for them. And want to point them to you and not be so necessarily concerned with, with what they're doing or saying or what they currently believe. But just that they need Jesus. Help us to show them. God, help us to be brokenhearted for the lost. Give us a new passion to see more and more people come into your church and into your kingdom. And help us be a part of that, Jesus. May Crosspoint be anointed and blessed to such a degree that people would want to come here. To hear and see you, Jesus. And that you would use this church to be a place where lost people get found. And we celebrate and we party well. Help us to do that. We love you and we are grateful for you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and the church said, Amen.